0: Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, Exploring the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes between books, on no particular schedule. Here we discuss the series' world building, overarching plot, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. My peeps! We have a review! Neither of us knows where it ended up, so she emailed it to me. Emily says, I love this podcast, especially the inclusion of spoilers from later in the series. It allows for much richer analysis. I just started my second read-through, so I really appreciate the way Christine connects everything from these early books to plot points that don't come up until books later. I listen to several Dresden podcasts, which are also great, but this is the only one that does that. I look forward to more episodes, and I'll be coming back every time I reread the Dresden Files. Keep up the good work. Aww, for made me blush. <laughs> I, I will keep it up. Thank you. To everyone who has left a review, thank you again. It helps algorithms, I'm told, and it is hugely encouraging to me. I live for praise. Oh, and I passed 950 downloads, which is just terrific. Love you all. And now, episode 15, if you have any power left, wizard. Recorded March 6th, 2022. Covering Full Moon, Book 2, Chapters 20 through 22, in this episode. Harry has a long conversation about the situation in which he finds himself. He chooses his ground on the fly, and it works! For a hot minute. Then he gets the shit kicked out of him and wakes up in the Full Moon garage with the leadership of the Street Wolves looking at him sideways. That can't be good. So... Let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Chapter 20. Me and my shadow. Y'all, I've been waiting for this chapter. Again, Harry wakes in a dark place. Well, there is a pool of light with no source. Harry walks into it. He feels all his current wounds, from the minor scrapes and bruises to his gunshot wound. He is naked of his magical implements. Then a figure appears, and we get perhaps the best description of Harry we ever get in the series. Quote, There appeared in the circle opposite me. Me. Myself. Only better groomed. Dressed in a mantled duster of black leather. Not the sturdy, if stylish, canvas that I wore. My double's pants and boots and shirt were all black as well, and they fit him as though tailor-made, rather than off the rack. His eyes were set deep, overshadowed by severe brows and glittering with dark intelligence. His hair was neatly cut, and the short beard he wore emphasized the long lines of his face, the high cheekbones, the straight slash of his mouth, and the angular strength of his jaw. He stood as tall as I... As long-limbed as I, but carried with him infinitely more confidence, raw knowledge, and strength. A faint whiff of cologne drifted over to me, cutting through my own sour sweat and blood smells. This is one of the few times we get real details of his, albeit idealized, appearance, rather than just really tall, dark hair, dark eyes, One might be able to draw a forensic likeness from the description like the one we get. He is, after all, called Harry's double consistently throughout. Just like Harry, his subconscious is impatient, arrogant, and full of insults. Though, they're all directed at Harry's conscious self. He calls Harry thick-skulled, moron, that he is smarter, wiser, and has more game than Harry. He is intuition, instinct, inspiration... He chooses Harry's dreams and nightmares. Harry is not impressed, even mad. He just wants to move on to better dreams than this. So he tries to leave. The double blinks into the space in front of Harry, blocking his way. His other self says there are issues he needs to work through for the sake of his sanity. Harry says, eh, fine. So I'll be going through a longer section here and omitting parts so this is an incomplete quote quote my double gestured and there was murphy as she had appeared in the hallway of the police station the flesh of her bicep tented out by the broken bone her face pale spotted with blood and streaked with tears and hopeless anguish murph i said quietly and knelt down by the image stars above what have i done to you The double said, What happened at the police station wasn't your fault. You've been trying to protect Murphy all along, instead of making her able to protect herself. Tell her everything, my double said. The White Council, the Never Never, all of it. Also, you should ask her out sometime. Unquote. Harry scoffs at this, but ultimately lets it go. But I won't. Forever, girl. Okay. Okay, I'm done. The double mentions Susan and asks why is Harry unsure that she isn't just dating Harry for the scoop? Why doesn't he trust her when she's been repeatedly helping him at her own peril? He suggests it has something to do with Elaine, who then appears as Murphy had, an image of her about 18, still cultish, but with the, quote, promise of stunning beauty, unquote. This is another description from Harry's own male gaze. And here's a situation wherein, as a human without supernatural loveliness, she could have been more average looking. Here, I will say something an old DM told me. Even though it's narrow-minded and not really true, it makes a point. If you want ugly people in your story, go ride the bus. So, Elaine is beautiful. Harry then thinks of her betrayal on that day recalling her, naked, with wild swirls of paint, chanting evil magics with her red-stained lips, quote, twisting, rolling phrases. In the midst of her circle, its sigils meant to focus pain and fury into tangible power that had been used to hold a foolish young man helpless while his mentor offered him one last chance to sip from a chalice of fresh, hot blood, unquote. Harry's double puts forward that as long as Harry held himself responsible for Justin's death and Elaine's fall, that day would overshadow everything he did. The double then insists that Elaine did not perish in the fire that followed the dark ritual, but is still alive, and until he takes account of these things, he won't be able to trust. Speaking of which, why is Harry trusting Tara West? What's up with those kids? She's obviously hiding something, but Harry can hardly point fingers for withholding the whole truth, and he's not had a lot of options for allies lately. The double suggests that Harry confront her about it all, and Harry puts it on the to-do list. Now, the murders. McFinn didn't commit all of them, particularly the industrialist, his bodyguard, and Spike, who were all killed by an animal, and not a true wolf. Also, whatever it was... There was more than one of them. Tara's group, the Alphas, could have done it, if they're shapeshifters. But did they ruin McFinn's circle? Eh, through Tara, they could have, but there's no motive he can guess, except perhaps Tara telling them to do it. But all her actions and words scream that she's genuinely in love with McFinn. The double says he doesn't think they've met these killers yet, or at least he doesn't think Harry has, quote, picked them out of the background yet." Individuals who want McFinn to take the fall, for everything. Then they go on to discuss the threats to Harry that he is forgetting about. Marcone, who is probably pissed Harry didn't take his offer. The cops, who after the slaughter at the station house may be literally gunning for Harry. Also, there's Parker, who absolutely must murder Harry if he wants to keep control of the street wolves. Parker also had insight into Harry's relationship with Marcone, and there's probably a connection between the two that Harry just isn't seeing. Time's about up, and the double sums up. Quote, Be careful, Harry. It's a real mess, and you're the only one who can clean it up. Who are you, my mother? I asked. My double snapped his fingers. <sniffs> that reminds me. Right. Your mother- Oh, hell. Unquote. And suddenly, he's being shaken firmly awake. Damn it! It's Chauncey all over again. But this time, it's something already in Harry's head. But what? Is he just wondering about his parents' unnatural deaths, which the demon brought up? Is there a detail his subconscious noticed which would shed some light on the situation? Is he wondering if maybe his mother is still alive? we can't know, because Jim wants us to suffer. But as Harry meets his subconscious, I notice something I find interesting. The double is much like the ego in Freud's theory of id-ego-super-ego. Which is weird, because according to Freud, the id is the subconscious, the source of our more selfish and animal urges. Harry's waking self seems to be a mix between id, Harry's aggressive, smart-alecky, horny self, and his superego, his moral center and judgment of himself and others. The ego is the part of the self that mediates between them, the awake, rational brain that weighs consequences and thinks things through. But that's absolutely the part of him that he meets while sleeping. So Whether Jim meant it to be that way, it's very interesting take on a character's psychology. Oh, and if my Psych 101 ass has mixed this all up, please let me know in the comments. Now. Now awake, he's still in Susan's car on an expressway, his body flooded by agonies. Tara then informs him that, quote, It is not good, Tara said from the back seat. If you have any power left, wizard, you should prepare to use it. We are being followed. Unquote. Speaking of those forgotten dangers, this whole chapter reads like Jim is speaking directly to us. Like Jim, Harry's double knows more than Harry does, and therefore more than we do. All of this recentering of Harry's focus and worry is all fine and good, but what the fuck was the double about to reveal? What information does Harry's subconscious self know about Harry's mom? What could it possibly be? Something Harry knows but hasn't put together? Is he just pondering possibilities? Was she killed as Chauncey claims? If so, by whom? And why? Is it possible that she lived and has disappeared for one reason or another? By Book 17, we have way more information about this. We know that she had another child with Lord Wraith and left him either before she met Harry's father or possibly for Harry's father. Could she have been killed or driven into hiding by Lord Wraith? If anyone could disappear, Margaret, in her knowledge of the ways, could. What about Harry's dad? Was that unnatural, too? Was it Lord Wraith's jealous revenge? Or did it have to do with Chauncey's titillating tease that Down Below was about to get their crabby pinchers on her before she slipped from their grasp? Was her relationship with Lord Wraith entangled with this connection to demons? And for that matter, as I'm writing this, I've thought of a new question. Well, probably not new to the fandom, but I don't read Reddit, so I wouldn't know. It's new to me. Was Margaret's affair with Lord Wraith even genuine, or did he entrance her with his vampy mojo? So many fucking questions. Chapter 21. Poems of Autumn. Susan is running out of gas, and Tara has noticed not one, but two cars that are tailing them. Harry tells Susan to exit the expressway and get to a gas station. Harry tells Tara he'll meet her at the warehouse where he first saw her in the Alphas only in code, so, quote, where you hold your Cub Scout meetings, unquote. Tara senses a selfless, if stupid, act coming on and commends him for attempting to save his mate. Susan protests that they are most certainly not mates, but, of course, they will be, offspring and all. Meanwhile, he gathers his necessities, his blasting rod, his potion, and his courage. He takes off his seatbelt, opens the door, and jumps rolling to a stop on the shoulder of the road. This proves to be just as rash a decision as it sounds, the barrel rolls doing nothing to help Harry's injured foot or shoulder. The pain makes him forget for a moment why he jumped, but then he remembers. He squeezes the whole potion into his mouth and chugs it. These descriptions, y'all. Quote, as it went down my gullet, I could feel the power in the brew spreading out into me, active and alive, as though I had swallowed a huge hyperkinetic amoeba, unquote. And it works gangbusters! The pain lessens to manageable levels, quote, and energy came rushing into me, like it sometimes does at the end of a really good concerto or overture, unquote. His thoughts clear, quote, as though someone had flushed my synapses with jalapeno," unquote. These are so floridly, yet bluntly descriptive. Just like Harry, he's got a punchy humor. His physical health seems inflated, as does his ego, and I find it fitting that Harry thinks of being energized both physically and mentally, but that his mental agility is couched in snark. Harry gets his offensive and defensive magic gear ready, heading into this confrontation with an overblown confidence. This is a little long, but it's so worth revisiting. Quote, I drew in a breath, smelling the odor of the rain on the asphalt, and more distinctly the crisp, clean scent of autumn, almost buried by Chicago's stink. I considered how much I loved the autumn, and composed a brief poem about it as I watched traffic force Susan's car along and out of sight. Unquote. Two cars cut traffic to follow him down the exit ramp, and quote, I smiled at him and contemplated his shocked expression to my own satisfaction. Then I drew in a breath and renewed my will with it, lifted the rod in my right hand, murmured a phrase in a language I didn't know, and blew the tires off his fucking truck. Unquote. He points out to us that this spell. Heating the air inside the tires of a moving car to bursting was no mean feat, was, and was cast on the fly, showing us again what a powerhouse Harry is. Truly terrifying, if he could simply muster some discipline. Of course, he will, once he has the Padawan, and terrifying is just the word for it. But here, the lead of the two vehicles, which had both had to cut across traffic with no notice at all, goes wild careening in a side roll that ends on its side, a short distance from Harry. Harry, who thinks he's taking care of business, is rudely proven wrong by Parker kicking the windshield out of his truck. Parker and his lieutenants climb free, battered and bruised. There stands the tank Harry has named Flatnose, and Lana, the woman who can whip her compatriots into a true frenzy. Parker looks worried, and Harry starts whistling the overture to Carmen. Parker's number one and two both attempt to move in and are shut down by both Parker, who wants Harry for himself, and by Harry, who wants Harry for himself, too. So he and Parker begin verbally pissing at each other. Harry talks a big game, but as he does, the lights are getting a little dimmer in his eyes. The rain gets colder and the pain begins to creep back in. The false energy of the potion is reaching its end. Quote, Okay, Harry, I told myself, keep calm, do not panic. All you have to do is hold them here until the cops get here, and then you can bleed to death in peace. Or go to a doctor, whichever hurts less, Unquote. Then we get this, which, holy cannolis, is just glossed over and I want to highlight it here. Quote, I jammed the rod at him and snarled, fuego! I funneled my will through it, and to hell with what the Council thought of me killing someone with magic. Nothing happened." Unquote. Now, I'm sorry, to hell with what? I mean, I suppose he could argue that the Street Wolves aren't really people, like Lycanthropes being able to supernaturally heal, which they're doing, by the way. But what about Harry's own morality? He seems to have fairly well otherized any creature, human-ish or otherwise, so that it's okay to fight and kill them with his magic. This kind of justification just seems so dangerous and hypocritical. Not only could you validate your decision to take a life, but I noticed that wizards, despite their magic and long life and ability to heal over time wounds which no mortal could heal, consider themselves to be fully human for purposes of the first law. Can't kill a wizard with magic unless you're defending yourself and or the helpless. But any other slightly inhuman creature is totally fair game. Interesting. His magic having failed him, Harry pulls his last resort. His chief special 38 caliber revolver. Harry always gets a kick out of the fact that nobody expects a wizard to carry a gun. Harry warns Parker. Parker steps forward. Harry kneecaps Parker spectacularly. And Parker just doesn't seem to care. He hunkers down just like nothing at all was wrong with his joint. Parker tells Harry about how the street wolves were searching and waiting for him, wanting to kill him, and how they saw the deadly kerfuffle at the police station, and how his people will all witness him ending Harry, who has, quote, a real badass reputation, kid, unquote. But most of all, Parker reminded Harry about how there were Two cars following him. And that's when Parker's backup started beating Harry with various melee weapons. Beating him to hurt him, to incapacitate him, to kill him later, once the rest of the street wolves return from letting off steam. Something of which I don't want to know the meaning. And hurt him. They did. The description is pretty brutal, and I won't quote it, except this. They broke me. Then, as his eyes began to wander, focusing on whatever was in front of them, he saw a car drive by them, and the driver? Red-headed Harris of the FBI. Holy shit. Harry has figured it out. Just in time to lose consciousness. Chapter 22. Snark Time. This time we are not told that Harry awoke in the dark, though it couldn't have been bright, as he saw light coming from under a door. He was in the full moon garage, duct-taped, sitting, to a vertical metal beam, hands, ankles, above and below the knee. It was raining outside. His worst wounds had been newly first-aided, and he'd been covered with a blanket, perhaps to keep him from going into shock. He was alone for the moment. He thinks about his father, the magician, who so loved Houdini, and begins trying to get out of the tape. Slowly, one by one, he breaks his bonds, but before he can get his ankles, the door with the lights opens, and so he throws the blanket back over himself and pretends to be unconscious. Parker's lieutenant questions why Harry isn't dead. Parker answers that Marcone needs to see him before they kill him. Marcone! And then there's this, quote: Marcone isn't just a mobster. Running Chicago is just his sideline, see? He's got business all over the country, and he owns people from here to the governor's mansion to Washington and back, and he's got more money than God. He can set us up, take us out, have the police on our ass anytime he wants. You don't screw with someone like that lightly. Agreed, sir. Tis dangerous to say no to people like that. Even so, Flatnose says to Parker, that maybe he was going soft with the implication that maybe he should take Parker out Parker Smacks him down, breaking bones and he goes into the office to call home the troops even so Flatnose says to Parker that maybe he was going soft with the implication that maybe he should take Parker out Parker Smacks him down breaking bones and he goes into the office to call home the troops Harry begins to consider his options Stay here until the Street Wolves arrive, and he'll never get away. Run this second, and Parker would hurt him, if not kill him for sure. His shot lies in pissing off Parker until he leaves the room to get a weapon, or another roll of duct tape for my mouth." Right. Snark time. Harry makes light of Parker's crew's ability to hurt him, truly, which we know is bullshit. But Parker laughs and says, Harry's got balls. Too bad Lana will be keeping them for herself. Oh, this isn't working. Harry needs a mad. So he asks, quote, How's the knee? Unquote. That did something. Parker assures Harry that he's healing just fine. Then, after sort of threatening Parker's balls, Harry says that Parker's peeps are ready for a regime change, and maybe Lana will bite off Parker's balls instead. Harry takes a boot to the head. Harry reminds Parker of how he's getting old. Boot to the stomach. More about how old Parker is, and suddenly Parker's had enough. Instead of going to cool off or to fetch some implement from another room, Parker just grabs a tire iron and raises it high to smash in Harry's skull. Don't you hate it when your best laid plans go to shit? Before we all go home, I want to talk for a minute about aging. I turned 40 last year, and I can feel my body beginning the long decline into old age. And it's existentially terrifying. Maybe, like me, you have a couple of kids getting close to adulthood and you wonder constantly what have you done to prepare them for their lives. Will they call me when they're out on their own? If I've done right by them, will I hear from them more because they love me for doing right by them? Or less because they do not need me anymore? Or maybe you don't have kids and you wonder what legacy you'll leave behind. Maybe you worry that when you're gone, no one will remember you. Either way, we are all slowly sliding into obsolescence and fear being forgotten before or after our deaths. But I also feel that I have earned my bad back and knees. And if it takes me a little longer to do things, or if I need help, I've earned that too. I know myself well enough now to feel most mostly comfortable in my skin, and to not care so much what people think. It has relieved the pressure to be beautiful in everyone else's eyes, and allows me to make myself, my core, my me, more beautiful. Practicing compassion and acceptance, allowing for growth from where I actually am rather than where I wish I were. Perhaps my understanding of life is singular, or there are other aspects of points of view I haven't considered. Hit me in the comments because I embrace those faults in my wisdom and actively hope to hear more about others' lives and experiences, to fill in the gaps of my knowledge, ultimately becoming better by being of service to others. Or we can get pissy, defensive, and homicidal about suggestions of aging. That can work, if you're a lycanthrope, I guess. Arigato, Doncashin, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode, links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is available on your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoyed this episode, please help the podcast grow for free. Take 30 seconds or less and share, like, comment, subscribe. Write a review on iTunes. Or send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com. Or chat with me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. My peeps, love everyone as though they were you. Take care.